0: Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your steadfast and faithful love toward us, uh, for apart from you, Father, we would still be dead in our sins, but we thank you that in Christ you have removed us, our sins from us, as far as the east is from the west. We praise you, Lord, for our sins that, are, that condemn us to eternity, separated from you, have been taken up, taken upon Christ on the cross. We praise you that we can come before you through faith in him with sins forgiven and with the, the promise of your Holy Spirit that we might worship and know you more and love you more. We pray that you would teach us now through, through your word and your spirit. Help us to uh, examine what your word has to say to your people, Israel, in the, in the plains of Moab and understand, Father, its principles Uh, its truths for us today in the city of San Francisco. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful uh, to your word and that you are faithful to your people. And we pray that you would teach us to be faithful uh, to our word and faithful to you uh, as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Numbers this morning. We'll be back in Numbers. Really appreciate. uh, Hopefully, um, uh, our 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 pastors, our fellow pastors in this church. uh, I know they've uh, last week was on vacation, so I appreciate Pastor Roger filling the pulpit and preaching the word of God. And I trust that uh, uh, you are encouraged. I know that uh, Pastor Ray. Many of you have been praying for him, and as he has been. uh, on paternity leave, and he's you know, surprised that a month has passed since the birth of uh, their daughter, and, uh, and so it's, he's back in the office, and so um, um, he's also available if you need any help with anything. Anyways, uh, Numbers chapter 30 is where we're going to be this morning, Numbers 30. Well, yesterday, uh, we had I, I had the joy of... Uh, Officiating a wedding yesterday here in this building, Uh, and that was kind of cool. of some of you were here for that, uh, and uh, it's always a joy. And that was because um, weddings are opportunities just to see life go on, life progresses uh, uh, for these young men and women that, uh, uh, by the providence of God, they they grow up, they mature, they they meet someone, and they they decide to enter into a holy marriage. And in fact, it was the for. it was the fourth wedding of the year that I had officiated, and, and I'm not, I am don't know if it's probably more than four weddings in this church over this past year. A lot of people are getting married in this church. Maybe you've probably attended a whole bunch more than I have, uh, but it's, it's a joy. And there are many favorite moments in a wedding ceremony, I suppose, for all of us. I think it's changed over the years as I grew, grew older. I used to always think the greatest moment of, the, of a wedding ceremony was when uh, the bride walks in, because I just remember that moment for me as a... Man's, this is, as the man is standing there waiting for my bride to come in, and she walked in, and that moment was so overwhelming. And I, I love watching the groom, watching the bride, and I know what you like. Uh, it, over the years, it's sometimes changed that moment where the, the bride and groom are, are, are praying together uh, after their vows. I love watching them pray together as husband and wife and before the Lord, and that's always a joy to me. But there's a, but there really is, as we think about as I think about weddings, there's really one moment that's the most important. And it is uh, objectively uh, the most important part of the wedding ceremony, and that's the exchange of vows. And I always say, again, many of you have probably been to weddings that I've officiated, I always come to that place where I say, we now come to the most sacred part of our wedding ceremony, the exchange of your vows. Everything else you do today is secondary compared to what you're about to do now. Your vows to one another are to be given sincerely and to be kept diligently. And I just say that every time, kind it's, it's, it's what I emphasize for the couple, and then I ask them, are you ready? And then we go through the I do's and the, and the rings and all that kind of stuff. And it's always a joy because you get to hear. Sometimes they choose to do a traditional vow. Sometimes they choose to write their own vows. But it is a joy to see a man and woman express their vows to love and cherish one another before God and all the witnesses that gather together. Of course, we know that in, in our world, a uh, world that is under the curse of sin, that these vows that, uh, that are made in our world are oft, too often broken, aren't they? Couples uh, find that they fall out of love. Uh, sometimes sin it cut, it impacts you know, infidelity, impacts a marriage, and, uh, and that destroys the trust, the bond between the husband and wife. Uh, in our days it 's just all too common just to simply say, oh, "We just can we just we just changed we 're no longer the same people, or uh, the most common i guess excuse or reason people give for marriage is irreconcilable differences but i don 't often, often emphasize it enough, but a Christian couple's faithfulness to their vows despite their feelings or their changes or their differences." is a testimony and witness to the faithfulness of God. A couple is a in, in their relationship is a mirror of God's image, a mirror of God's love, but also a mirror of God's faithfulness. And a couple that learns to show grace, forbearance, and loyal love reflects God's grace, God's forbearance, and God's loyal love. And they reflect God's faithfulness. Though God is faithful to his word, God's people are not always faithful to theirs. But as those who are redeemed, we ought to strive to be men and women who are faithful to our words, because in doing so, we we show to the world that God is faithful. And in today's passage, we get a reminder of this importance, that we as God's people ought to be a people who are faithful to our word as the Lord himself is faithful to his word. When, in particular, this passage applies to the uh, the people of God making vows to the Lord. Not just a vow to another person, but a vow to the Lord our God. In biblical times, uh, vows to God were a common practice. It was uh, something that people, it was what they did. Uh, it was Psalm seventy-six eleven. Uh, in fact, we see it referenced in the in the Old Testament, Psalm 7611 says, Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Psalm 50 verse 14 says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Now, I don't know about you today. We don't generally make vows. I, think, I don't make many vows like, uh, in terms of worship. But that was a common practice among not only Israel, but many of the ancient Near East r- religions as well. And oftentimes there would be a vow that would be made by a worshipper to God to do something or to abstain from something or to offer something uh, as an expression uh, of of, uh, of trust in the Lord. It was often expressed through prayer; it's a verbally expressed to the Lord, and, uh, and and usually it would be tied in with, Lord, if you do this or if you do that for me, then I will do this, I will, or I will, uh, I will abstain from this, or I will give up that. And we don't maybe not think of term, it in terms of vow, but maybe we've thought like this in our prayers. In times of trial, particularly, we, we're tempted to do this. We, we're tempted to, to make, sort of make a vow to the Lord. Lord, if you help me with, you know, fill in the blank, with this or that, then I will, I will go to church regularly. If you help me with this or that, I'll, I will give up this, 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 this guilty pleasure or that. That, uh, that, uh, that thing that's causing me to, to walk in sin. If you help me with this, then Lord, I will serve you with all my life. And well, things like that. And like all human beings, when we might make so, such promises, prayers to the Lord in our, in our searching, in our prayers, when the trial is passed and our prayers are answered, we tend to forget what we vow. Ecclesiastes 5, 4 to 5 says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. And that what's reflected in this verse is kind of reflected in our passage this day. The importance of if you make a vow to the Lord, then you must be faithful to keep your vow to the Lord. Because God... Is faithful to keep all his vows, all his promises to you. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Israel is now camped in the plains of Moab. The first generation has died off because of their unfaithfulness, their lack of trust in the Lord. And now the second generation is on the cusp of entering. They're awaiting God's instructions. They're preparing to enter the promised land. They're preparing to go to war, to go to battle. And God has been preparing them with various instructions. And, and you every time we come to an instruction that God gives here, we all almost ask, how is this related to their situation? Why they're preparing for war? These are, things, these are things that God wants them to know as they prepare to enter into the promised land, as they prepare to go to war. In Numbers 26, he had them take a census so that they would know how many fighting men they have, how many people are going to go to war, and how many people are going to inherit the promised land. Numbers 27 provides instructions about how people can inherit the land. And especially if uh, somebody does not have any sons who would normally be the one who inherit the land. And describes the commissioning of Joshua, the next leader who would actually lead Israel in conquering the land. Then in Numbers 28 to 29, God gave them instructions for the offerings that the priests were to bring daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly when they are in the land. As a reminder of of the of their their need to worship the Lord always. Today we take a look at the instructions that God gives to Israel about vows, vows that prepare Israel to enter the Promised Land, and it's a pretty simple outline. You can as you read as well read the chapter, and it's simply two points, two situations that remind God's people to be faithful to their word. That there's these two. Uh, Two conditions, two circumstances that remind God's people to be faithful to the word as the Lord is faithful to his word. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. Hopefully it's an encouragement to us and particularly as we'll examine our, our own uh, faithfulness to our own word as well as be reminded of God's faithfulness to his. And the first uh, situation that reminds God's people to be faithful to the word as the Lord is faithful to his is the if. In the condition or in the situation when and if a man makes a vow. If a man makes a vow. Look at verse 1 to 2 of chapter 30 with me, please. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so that's this first. That's that's, this is the first condition when the man makes a vow. Verse one tells us that Moses' instruction here is directed. You'll notice is directed toward the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, and that's a bit unusual. Usually, Moses is directing his instructions to all the congregation. So the fact that he directs it to the only the heads is stands out. Why does he address just the leaders of these tribes? Because these twelve leaders as heads are responsible to carry out the adjudication of the various conflicts, uh, the various uh, 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 difficulties that might arise out of vows that are made, and sometimes vows that are made rashly, or vows that are somehow failed to be kept. As we'll see later in the text, God's instructions to these leaders is basically an affirmation of God's establishment of leadership. God establishes leaders among his people, whether tribes or families. And in this case, these leaders have the responsibility to lead their tribes in obedience to God's instruction. The instruction involves the situation, which is stated in verse 2, that if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation. Now, the Hebrew word for man here, it's uh, it's, kind of neat, just a, a little Hebrew lesson. Uh, kind of what's neat about uh, man, the Hebrew words for man and woman, it's kind of just like our English word, man, woman. Well, in Hebrew, man is ish, and woman is isha. And that's so very similar. It's just like man and woman. Uh, to us, this isha because she comes out of man, ish, isha. But this word, ish, that is used here oftentimes refers to mankind in general, or sometimes refers to mankind in general, humankind in general. But in the context, particularly of the next section that we're going to read, the word here is used in its basic meaning of a man, a male man, uh, someone who, uh, a male person. And so God commands his instructions here, though really the the principle applies to all, but yet he's directing these instructions, or he's writing explicitly or giving them explicit instruction to the men when we make our vows. Now, what exactly is a vow that is to be made? I know it kind of is obvious to many of us today, but let's just consider the Hebrew, kind of some Hebrew background, uh, if they might give us further understanding of this word. Two words are, in fact, used here in verse 2 regarding vows. One is translated vow, uh, if a man takes a vow to the Lord. But the second word is translated as a binding obligation. He takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation. In fact, the, an oath to bind himself is a, is a verbal form of binding obligation. And uh, so, uh, so this first word uh, of, to, that's translated "vow" is a more common word. It's the most. Common word for vow in the Old Testament, it refers to basically a verbal promise to God, an expressed verbal promise to God. God, I, I promise to do this. I promise to do this. It's a promise to do something. Sometimes it's a promise to to offer something. Sometimes it's a promise to abstain from something, um, the most common type of vow in the Bible, is, and we, which we read in the Psalms predominantly, is a promise to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of an animal, but it was a, some kind of sacrifice to be made to the Lord. But the second word that we find in verse 2 conveys the idea of something being bound, being bound to something. And, and, in, the, and in the usage of it, it seems to refer to basically a vow to abstain from something. So it's a more of a... Whereas the one <clears throat> in this... In our particular chapter, a vow might refer more to the, the positive promise. I'm going to do something, or I'm going to I'm going to give something, and this uh, this uh, binding obligation refers to something that we're going to someone might promise to abstain from. Uh, it's uh, um, uh, maybe it's like a promise to I'm going to abstain. I'm not going to eat any food uh, un- until Lord, you do this. Okay, that's usually the that kind of uh, idea. So in our context, of course, the most important thing about these vows is that these are vows not to anybody else. Um, They're vows to the Lord. They're promised to God. It's a vow to the Lord. It's a vow that's offered, promised to God. That's what makes these vows so significant. Now, vows in the Bible are neither explicitly commanded nor are, in, in fact, not even very much described in the law. There's not, let's say, this is how, this is basically how you should go about giving a vow. It rather, in the Old Testament, it already rather presumes the practice of vows. Now, and the reality is that vows had existed uh, even as early as the time of the patriarchs, even before the giving of the law. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 20 through 22, if you remember, there when Jacob is sent away because of his, you know, his his schemes, he's sent away to Padan Aram to his family, uh, to go find a wife. But he vows on that night that if God would be with him and protect him and bring him back to his father's house safely, then he promised that the Lord would be his God, and he would build an altar to God, and he would give a a tenth, a tithe of all that he has to the Lord in worship. That was his promise. It was a vow. And so it was a common practice because he did it. Because the people in the ancient Near East they did it. It was part of their worship. And we see that in, in uh, some ancient Near East manuscripts. And so that practice was just a common. It was just a, a pra- common practice that was kind of also practiced by the people of Israel with respect to God. And so in the law, what we find instead of commands to to make vows, there are no commands to make vows, or really instructions. We find a lot of instructions regarding what to. Evolving uh, surrounding the various circumstances that vows, when people make vows. So, for instance, uh, in Leviticus 27, we find instructions regarding what to do when someone makes a difficult vow. What happens when you vow, "I'm going to serve the Lord with all my life"? You know, uh, and yet, and then yet, but they're not a Levite. Well, you can't because you know only Levites are allowed to serve in the tabernacle or uh, or the descendants of Aaron. So you can't do that. So there would be instructions about what you had to do, and there would be an evaluation of what you offer, what you vow to give the Lord. And if you can't give that thing, then you have to give a certain amount of money, a money equivalent to the Lord, or an animal equivalent to the Lord. Uh, Leviticus 22, 17 and 25, regarding vows, teaches that the vows or votive offerings, votive offerings are basically offerings that are made out of a vow, are to be free of blemish. They're so to be perfect animals without blemish. Uh, Earlier in Numbers chapter 6, in fact, uh, of our study, we studied the vow of the Nazarite. You remember the vow of the Nazarite? It was a voluntary vow that a man or a woman could make, basically to devote themselves to serve the Lord completely. And uh, as for a period of time. Uh, Perhaps the most significant instruction is from Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 through 23. And this will be given, it's actually going to come later historically compared to Numbers 30, but we read here, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. And so, if you take this passage, you take Ecclesiastes, and you take Numbers 30 here, and all, and all together, vows are neither not really commanded at all, but the Lord is concerned that when you make a vow, keep your vow. When you give your word that you're going to do to the Lord to do something, or to abstain from something, or to give something to him, then be sure to keep your word, because God is a God who keeps his word. If you voluntarily speak a vow, be careful to fulfill it, even though it's an optional thing. You, never, it's, you don't even need to make vows, but the act of promising with your lips to God makes it a matter of faithfulness for you. And will you, the question is, will you be, when you make such vows, will you be faithful and true to your word? That's important to God. In our day, we're too used to being in a world of leaders, of politicians that make all sorts of promises that don't keep them, right? We're just used to that. It's normal. And that becomes the standard. If they are leaders and they are a standard, then it's easy for you. You can imagine why people don't care about being faithful or true to their word. But we as the people of God who follow a God who is faithful to his word must strive to his standard and to be people who are faithful to our word. That's what we find here in Numbers 30, verse 2, then. That the man who makes a vow to the Lord shall not violate his word. You, not, you cannot violate. That word violate. It's an English word. It's, it's a very strong word. And in the Hebrew, it is, too. It means to profane what is sacred. To make something, to take something that's sacred and profane it. To make it treated as if it's common. It's like, you know, just using your... your uh, your fine china and just using it to, you know, to, to plant something, you know, to put some dirt in there. It's you're using a common purpose when it's meant to be used for a fine purpose. See, a vow to the Lord is something that is sacred. When you promise an animal or promise to praise him or promise to give up something, food or, or other, th- other uh, uh, um, comfort, If that thing that you vow is not forbidden by the Lord, then that vow is sacred. And to not fulfill the vow is to profane something promised to God. And the man shall be faithful to do all that proceeds out of his mouth. God's people are to be faithful to their word. And this is particularly true when it comes to vows in marriage. I can't emphasize enough... um, it's so easy to say, I do, I do. And when we're there on the altar, right? All of us did it or that, were, that have been married. If you come to realize that it is, is a hard, it's much harder to keep it. It is, especially in times of, of want, especially in, uh, in sickness, especially through the times of, uh, that are worse. It's hard when those times happen, to keep our vows, and those times happen in every life, but we are to be people who keep our word, keep our vows, and this applies not just to vows of marriage, but it applies to all of us and any vows that one might make. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches about the practice of vows. Matthew five thirty three thirty seven. Let's go there and look at that. Jesus in this uh, sermon. To, about the kingdom of God. Is, these are the characteristics of those who are going to be in his kingdom. He says, again, you have heard, but the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows, Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these things is evil, is of evil. Now, uh, Christ here is not forbidding vows or oaths per se, but he's forbidding... The practice of giving deceptive or careless oaths. People, and just you can see there's references, people in those days, it was common to, to swear by heaven or swear by earth or swear by Jerusalem, swear by their own heads, or you might say today, by their own lives, by my own life, as a way of, basic, of sounding sincere in whatever they promise. Like, it's so serious. I, I, I swear to heaven, I swear to earth, I swear to Jerusalem, I swear I'm on my life. That sounds real serious, right? But they would swear by these things, and then it was a way of basically keeping their fingers crossed behind their back, right? You, know, you ever did that? Okay. It was a way of, of getting out because they didn't swear to God, and that was how they could get out of it. And Jesus condemned them for this practice of, of careless and deceptive and frivolous oaths that they made. Jesus argues that the people of his kingdom must be people who speak the truth. If they say yes, they should mean yes. If they say no, they should mean no. They are those who are faithful to their word. And so whether you're a man or a woman as a follower of Christ, we ought to be people of our word. Are you a person of your word? Do you do what you say you'll do? Do the people around you see the faithfulness of God? when they look upon your life because of your faithfulness to your own word? And while God's instructions here in verses 1 to 2 begins with the men, you'll notice that the bulk of the instruction of our chapter concerns women. And this becomes then for us the second situation that reminds God's people to be faithful to their word as the Lord is faithful to his. And that is in the situation when, if a woman makes a vow. And before we read this, I, I just thought, because I have the time, I wanted to say and it's worth saying, worth saying in our days, particularly in our present day of, of gender dysphoria, gender confusion, that the Bible teaches that there are two genders, two sexes. Now, I know the world wants to make a distinction between those two words, but they are, those distinctions that they make are, are constructs of men. They're not grounded in any reality at all. Simply because I, I feel like a woman, or I think I'm a woman, I identify as a woman, therefore that makes me a woman, though genetically, every molecular cell of my body says that I'm, I'm a man, male, That's not reality. That's fantasy. It's confusion. Thinking or feeling or identifying you are something doesn't make you that in reality, does it? I may sincerely think that I'm a duck. Whack. I may even dress up as a duck. But that doesn't make me a duck. Okay, that doesn't. But from beginning to end... The Bible affirms that every man, woman, child, every born, every person has a gender, has, and one of two genders. Per, the person is either a man or a woman. That person is either male or female. Genesis 127 states that God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. What's more, Jesus affirmed this very truth. Jesus, our Lord Jesus, affirmed this. In the New Testament, Mark 10, 6, he said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And that should settle it for the follower of Christ. No matter what our world says. No matter what pressure the world brings. And they're bringing pressure. Well, that's enough about that. Perhaps... Uh, my Get a workshop on that someday. But in this section, we find the situation when women make a vow. We find several classes of women are addressed in this passage. In particular, these these are women who are under the authority of a father or a husband. But before we look at those details, again, I, I want to take another just aside to consider the context of what we're looking at here today. It helps, the context is important, and it helps in our interpretation of this particular section. We want to ask ourselves the question, why are these instructions on vows, why are they emphasized here for the second generation of Israel as they're preparing to enter the promised land? Why does God say, you're going to go into the promised land, they're going to go to war, why are these vows important? Now, some suggest that the vows are simply, they're just a type of offering. And vows oftentimes were called votive offerings. They were offerings that are made. And so it's just continuing the theme of offering in chapters 28 and 29. And that's a possibility. But the offerings in the previous chapters are primarily the offerings made by the priests. It wasn't just anybody else. It, It wasn't the individual offerings which vows or votive offerings would be. And so one alternative suggested, and this is what I believe is the, is the best understanding of the purpose of these, of these verses here, is that these, that these vows are here because vows are frequently made in times of war, in times of preparation for war. Most well-known in the Bible is the foolish vow of Jephthah. You guys know Jephthah's vow in seeking victory over the Ammonites in Judges 11, 30 through 31. He vowed that, Lord, if you bring me back safely in the battle of the Ammonites, whatever comes out of my door to greet me first, I'm going to offer it to you as a burnt offering. That means to be burned up in fire. And sadly, of course, you know his daughter came out first to greet him. And that's, a, that's an interesting story. But even back in Numbers chapter 21, verse 2, when Arad attacked Israel and took some of Israel captive, we read, this is what Israel did. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hands, then I will utterly, utterly destroy their cities. And God delivered the Aradites into their hands and they utterly destroyed the cities. But what's more, particularly in our context, instead of looking to the previous two chapters, we should look to the next chapter, to chapter 31. If we look at Numbers chapter 31, Israel's second generation, in fact, we're going to find there, is going to go to war very soon. They're going to go and, and take vengeance upon the Midianites. This would be the first of many battles that Israel would face before possessing the promised land. And during wars... Men who go off to fight will make vows. They will. Sometimes men who go off to will become uh, probably very more religious and more aware because it's a matter of life and death. What's going to happen to? Him if I die, who's going to take care of my my family? And so they will make vows. Lord, bring me back safely. Give me victory, and I, I will vow to you to offer up sacrifices to you when I return in the in the tabernacle. And it's not just men who would make vows, but women who would make vows. Lord, bring watch over my father. Lord, watch over my husband. Please protect us while they go off to war. And we will offer up to you our praises. We will offer to you our sacrifices. If you would deliver them, deliver us safely. And many of those women would many of the women would make vows in the absence of their fathers, in the absence of their husbands. And so these verses address these, these the impending and upcoming circumstances. When a woman makes a vow. In, in the absence of her husband, in the absence of her father, and it's a vow that is something that her father and husband do not approve. And so we see then these are the instructions of the vow, when a vow, when a woman makes a vow. First of all, we see the case of young women making vows. They are addressed first in verses three through eight. We read in verse three, days, chapter thirty. Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself, and her father says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father had forbidden her." So here we see the circumstance of a young woman still living in her father's house. That is, she's single. She's in her father's house. And she then makes a vow to the Lord. A vow, perhaps, in times of war, a vow for the Lord to bring her father safely back. And so her father, because she is under his authority, has the authority to either validate or void her vow. If he hears her vow and says nothing, then her vow stands. He validates the vow. But if he hears of it and then forbids her, then her vow is nullified. In either case, the underlying principle of being faithful to one's word is upheld. For even when her father voids the vow, in verse 5, we read there that the Lord will forgive her. And the fact that the mention of forgiveness is, that is offered here reinforces that this idea, this principle, that to not fulfill one's vow is a sin, to not keep one's word, a promise to God, is a violation and sin against God. But there is a we see here another principle at work in this passage, and we alluded to earlier when we talked about the the this passage being addressed to the leaders of the tribes. Here we see an affirmation of the authority, the leadership of a father of a home. A father, many of you are out there are fathers, um, you know, you have have authority in your home given to you by God, by the Lord. It's not something that's attributed to you by your, your children or your wife. It's attributed to, given to you by the lord's instruction you are the head of the household it obviously it is you are the one who are to who is to be a leader in your home to serve to love to protect to provide uh, for your family members and to guide them you have a responsibility as well as the authority over that family And that's what we see affirmed here. So even when a young woman makes a vow in her father's household and he doesn't agree with it, then he has the right and the authority to invalidate, to avoid that vow. But what happens when a young woman makes a vow and her father doesn't say anything, but then she gets married before fulfilling the vow? What happens then? That's the case in verses 6 through 8. verse 6 8 we read this. However, if she should marry while under her vows or the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, And her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day he hears it. Then her vow shall stand and her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day her husband hears of it, he forbids her, then he shall annul her vow which she is under and the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself and the Lord will forgive her. Though her father may have validated her vow by not opposing it, when she gets married and the vow has not yet been fulfilled, Her husband, when he hears of the vow, when he becomes aware of it, then he has the same opportunity to validate or avoid the vow. Because when the young woman marries, she leaves her father and mother, and she joins her husband. God, in fact, calls them one flesh. They start a new family. They're a new home, household. And where the husband is now the head of the family. And at that time, he's the head of the wife and eventually had even the children. And he then too, by God's, by God's command and instruction, has the responsibility and authority over his family. And if he voids his wife's vow, even though it's made prior to their marriage, then she is free from that vow. Again, we notice that the Lord forgives her. Now what if the woman making a vow is no longer married Due to death or divorce of a husband, and we see that in verse nine, very briefly in verse nine. But the vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, everything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. A widow or a divorced woman is no longer under the authority of either her father or her husband. The widow or divorced woman's vow, therefore, is the same as is the man. So the print that can, the overarching principle abides. And she must fulfill in the same manner as the man who makes a vow to the Lord. She must keep her vow. The third class of women is addressed in verse 10 to 15. And we see this in verse 10 to 15. We read, However, if she vowed, if a woman vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an obligation with an oath, and her husband heard it but said nothing to her and did not forbid her, then all her vows shall stand and every obligation by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband indeed annuls them on the day he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the obligation of herself shall not stand. Her husband has annulled them, and the Lord will forgive her. Every vow and every binding oath to humble herself, her husband may confirm it or her husband may annul it. But if her husband indeed says nothing to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all her obligations which are on her. He has confirmed them because he said nothing to her on the day he heard them. But if he indeed annuls them after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. And so a married woman in this circumstance who makes a vow to the Lord can now can have her vow validated or avoided by her husband. And then we kind of see that with the, the young woman who gets married even a, uh, after making a vow. But this is now a married woman, already married, who makes a vow, her husband has the authority to also void or validate her vow. Um, but if for some reason, he didn't say anything about her vow when he became aware of it, when he first heard of it, but then he somehow later on changes his mind, maybe because it's to his advantage or whatever reason, then it says that he shall bear the guilt for the broken vow. It's as if he sinned because he basically changed his mind. He, had to, he was basically. Uh, he's basically profaning or violating the word of God. And he would, and as Leviticus 5 verse 4 and following teach that he would become guilty of the sin. He would have to bring a guilt offering to the Lord to offer for his sin of breaking his vow. And so the section on the vows of women ends with verse 16, which we read, these are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses as between a man and his wife and as between a father and his daughter while she is in her youth in her father's house. And so the focus in these vows has been on these vows of women has been on the father's authority over his child or over as well as on a husband's authority over his wife A child is to honor father and mother and to obey them that's commanded by the Lord A wife is commanded to submit to her husband She is to be his helper And what these verses convey is that there's a God-given duty to husband or father that exists. And this God-given duty that a woman or child has to a husband or father overrides any optional vow to the Lord that one might make. Or more importantly, if you flip that around, optional vows to the Lord do not override one's God-given obligations. We see this fleshed out in the New Testament. As the practice of vows continued in the New Testament era, some often used their vows unscrupulously to basically shirk their obligation to their family. Oh, so, uh, and it was common in those days. And according to in Matthew chapter 15, verse 3 through 9, uh, the it's a, a there Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and scribes. Basically, neglecting their God given obligation to honor and care for their parents. Though they are to honor father and mother, but oftentimes they would, these scribes and Pharisees would say, Well, all that I have that I could use to help you, mom and dad, well, they're devoted to the Lord. They're they're korban, as the, the, the terminology goes. And because they were devoted to the Lord, then it was basically their excuse to basically not care, not honor their father and mother. And Jesus called them out for this. He called them out for this not because of their hypocrisy. He calls them you hypocrites. They invalidated the word of God for the sake of their traditions. And so they had used vows of of promising their things to the Lord so in a way in order to basically not to get out of honoring, helping out their parents. In all these statutes, then, regarding a woman's vow to the Lord, we learn that while vows are, may be a practice by the people of God, and they were, and they ought to be fulfilled, if you make them, they are, they, they are never to be an excuse to disobey God's clear commands, like honoring parents or submitting to her husband or even if, if, for men to love your wives, Vows, how do we classify vows? Vows are like a, if you want, it's a, really a, a form of prayer. It's a part of, if you could call it, we're gonna, in our next quarter, we're going to be talking about spiritual disciplines. And, um, and Jesus doesn't, you know, tells us, you know, not, that we don't even need to make vows, just simply let you yes, be yes, no, but no. But it was a religious tradition. We can probably classify it as a tradition. It was a religious tradition, religious practice of, of people. And they're not necessarily wrong, because it's not forbidden. In fact, it's even guided when, uh, it's like, sort of like fasting. And Jesus, when he talks about fasting, he says, when you fast, he doesn't say, commands us to fast. But when you fast, are you going to fast? Then fast in this way. Religious traditions are not necessarily wrong. But they should never be an excuse for disobeying the clear commands of God. And I, in our days, we, we don't, maybe, and hopefully that, that, may, that should be true with regards to vows, but we have religious traditions as well in the church, things that we believe ought to be practiced by people, and one of the traditions that we have or that flows out of the principle of God, of God's word is that we ought, to be, we ought to be serving in the church, okay, we ought to be serving in the church. Now, we ought to be serving the Lord, that's true, because the Bible tells us, serve the Lord. And certainly within the church body, we, we do use our gifts to serve one another. But a lot of times we formalize it and we say, every, it comes to a place where you almost have to have a official ministry of service in the church. And then we, get, we carry it too far. We make something that's a good thing, serving in the church, serving the Lord, serving in the church, a good thing. We make that a, almost a necessity. It becomes a tradition where you have to serve in a ministry in the church. And I would say it's a good thing for you to serve in the ministry of the church. But let me just add, especially when we're young and immature and when we're not aware, thinking carefully about the impact of, of, of ministry in our lives, how it affects us, impacts our lives. In the serving in the church, that can become a that can become a cause or reason for us to neglect the greater commands of God, to honor our parents, to love our spouse, to love our children. I can give you many examples of, of pastors who gave themselves to serving the Lord and his church, but neglected to love their wives, neglected to, to discipline and raise up their children, and they are no longer in the ministry. They failed God because of religious just the, a religious tradition. Well, their job, really. But that happens for us. I know uh, the, when I was a young Christian, many of our college students, many of our, we would uh, all be involved in church. And our parents, were, you would hear these complaints from parents saying, my kids are always at church. All they're doing is being, hanging out at church. They're never doing anything around the house. And we said, and we said well, but we're serving the Lord. We're serving the Lord. Of course, our pastors were you know, the pastor was smart enough to tell us, you know, you, you need to obey on your parents. They want you to serve because we eventually learn that you can't let the religious traditions, the religious practices that we have, God doesn't mean that it's going to cause you to disobey his clear commands. And so that's just kind of something, that's an application, of thought, a good application principle, something we can we apply in this particular circumstances, not allowing any religious traditions that we have to become higher or greater, override our obligations to obey the clear commands of God to fulfill our duties to our family, to fulfill our duties uh, to our spouses, our children, our parents. And uh, and I just encourage uh, all of us, uh, you know, you are serving the Lord when you love your spouse and when you love your children and when you honor your parents. You're serving the Lord in those ways. Sometimes that may should be for a period of time, especially if your parents are old and they're not yet believers. I would make sure that I would encourage you to focus on serving them, because there's not much time, and they need to know the love of the Lord. They need to know the faithfulness of God. They need to know that you honor your parents because you honor God, and uh, perhaps the Lord may use that to lead your own parents to the Lord. Well, we conclude then. We we'll wrap it up here. Oh, oh, oh. Last week's sermon. Israel on the cusp of entering the promised land preparing for war against the Canaanites would have made many vows to the Lord neither forbidden nor commanded by the Lord they were expressions of faith in the Lord their God but God's concern for his people is that they would be his image bearers that they would be themselves faithful to their word as he is faithful to his word Psalm 33, 4 reminds us of the faithfulness of God. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. God is a God of faithfulness. And then Israel was going to enter the, is going to be delivered from their enemies and enter the promised land not by the, the number of vows that they will make to the Lord, but by the faithfulness of God to his promises to them. His faithfulness to his word. And as they trusted him through the wilderness, they must trust in him in the promised land. Most importantly, the Lord is faithful to keep all his promises, of course, and his promise especially of his promised son to come and die for us. And as promised, he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins and rose from the third, on the third day so that all through faith in him might know the Lord's salvation from sin. And with that, I'll just leave you with three questions for discussion. Uh, or for uh, your thoughts. Are you a man or woman of your word? Well, maybe we don't make vows like the Old Testament practices. It's not real common today, but maybe it comes out in our prayers, perhaps. But basically, let's ask ourselves, are we men and women of our word? Are we faithful to what we say we're going to do? Because that reflects God's character who's faithful to do what he says he's going to do. Uh, And then uh, sometimes to help us in being faithful, we need to remember how God is faithful. What are some ways that God has shown his faithfulness to you? And then thirdly, um, just the one particular application of the uh, this principle how might your religious traditions be keeping you from obeying the commands of God and how might it be uh, maybe there's nothing going on in that area but just think about how could it possibly happen and, and that's just being aware is a part of being aware of The potential dangers can help us avoid those de- falling into those dangers in our lives let's wrap it up in prayer Father in heaven we thank you for your word and thank you for this instruction in preparing Israel for the upcoming war that they would face, and the vows that they would probably make uh, to him, and yet Lord, we see the emphasis on the necessity of your people to be faithful to their word, that what they vow they ought to keep and to pay. yet Lord, we see also the instructions to, to, <clears throat> to not allow um, our traditions our religious the vows we make even to you to override any. Any ob- biblical obligation to those are in our, those in our authority our, our husbands our, our our parents, our father and mother, and so Lord, help us to always strive to um, be people who are careful in following all your, following your ways so that we would not uh, violate your commands in simply keeping uh, the traditions of men, Lord, we praise you that in the end, that you are a God who is faithful to your, to your promise. You're a God who is uh, loyal in your love. You're a God who is steadfast to your, for your people. We thank you, Lord, that you, have been, you will deliver Israel uh, because of your faithfulness to your own promises. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to us, your people today, through the promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We praise you and worship you for your goodness to us. In Christ, and we pray that you would help us be people who are faithful to, just as you are faithful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.